So today I'm honored to uh, introduce again David Menashri. David Menashri has been coming to ISGAP Yisa for many years discussing the question of Iran. I don't know how much longer we're going to be able to discuss the question of Iran. It seems that uh, we're heading for the moment of truth one way or the other. So there's nobody better than uh, David Menashri to give an overview of uh, Iran, Iranian society, and the nuclear issue that we're uh, confronting with the P5 plus 1 and Iran. So today he'll discuss Iran, the United States, and the view from Israel. Uh, David Menashri is currently the president of the Law and Business School in Ramat Gan in Israel. He's the founder of the Iranian Studies uh, Program at Tel Aviv, sorry, the Iranian Studies Center at Tel Aviv University, and he's a professor emeritus at Tel Aviv. Uh, he was the professor of Middle Eastern and African Studies um, in Tel Aviv. Um, he has, he's a senior research fellow at the Moshe Dayan Center at Middle East Studies and African Affairs. He's been a Fulbright Scholar at Princeton and Cornell. In the late 1970s, he spent two years conducting field research in Iran just on the eve of the Islamic Revolution. His research and teaching focuses on the social and political history of modern Iran, issues of education and modernization in the Middle East, Islamic radicalism, Shiite political thought, issues surrounding the Persian Gulf and Central Asian affairs. Uh, David Menashri um, is widely published with many books and, and many, many articles um, in respected journals. He's really one of the preeminent scholars in the world on Iranian issues and certainly um, from the Israeli context, the leading uh, expert on Iran. So, David, thank you for coming again. Uh, thank you, Charles, and thank you for coming this cold day. Uh, it's, uh, it's always a challenge to speak about Iran. And uh, the bad news for you, Charles, Iran will be with us for a long time. No matter how they go, the nuclear issue is a very important country in the Middle East. Uh, and uh, it's uh, going to be, for better or worse, uh, uh, influencing our life uh, for many, many years. And uh, speak louder. Okay. How often you ask Israelis to speak louder? <laughs> uh, so uh, I, I really I studied Iran for many many and still continue to study Iran for many for many years, continuing with it. And to be honest with you, I cannot claim to know Iran because it's so difficult. It's so, it's an enigma. It's a country that it's very difficult to penetrate and to really understand. Uh, one thing is clear. It's not the black and white that we usually see in the press. It's not entirely good. It's not entirely bad. It's, not, uh, it's a mixture of so many colors and so many different attitudes. And sometimes I think people are missing this basic point, that when you speak about Iran, you speak about the country, which has a rich tradition, and it has been an empire for a long time. It has been, it's composed with many ethnic groups and many political trends and factions. Uh, 
And sometimes I have the impression that the more you study Iran, the less you understand. Because when you go into details, you can, under, you can see the different faces. And let me just begin by telling you that uh, two main trends that currently uh, we see in Iran, one is usually called pragmatic, reformist, moderate. Uh, I would say the civil society in Iran, the young people of Iran, the university graduates of Iran, and many of them are not uh, radical. Many of them want to live a good life like uh, our children want to do. And uh, they, they have very nice face. I look at the Iranian young people, and many of them, I saw them going to the streets and demonstrating against the government, again, for their values that they believe, I have a lot of respect to them. Uh, they have uh, wonderful the books that they write, uh, as long as they're being allowed to be published in Iran, the newspapers, until they are being uh, shut down, cinema industry in Iran. Uh, so there is a nice civil society. And there are uh, women organizations in Iran are more active than women organizations in anywhere else in the Middle East, including, I would say, Israel. So on the one hand, you see the nice face or the political trend, which is more pragmatic, reformist. And by the way, pragmatism does not mean that they are moderate. Uh, pragmatists can also do out of pragmatism radical things. But uh, there is a civil society which is, uh, I think, uh, at least, I think it ensures that in the long future, one day, there will be a better situation in Iran. The problem is when and how far Iran will go with the nuclear program before there is a change inside Iran. But the main problem is that the decision-making in Iran is not in the hands of young people in the streets of Tehran University and other universities. The, the decision-making in Iran is not in the hand of the pragmatic, moderate, if you want, reformist uh, politicians. Ultimate authority continues to rest in the hands of the radicals. And they are the only, and they and only they make decisions in Iran. I was reading a a leading Iranian newspaper, Kehan, uh, 10 days ago, with article against Rouhani and the concessions that he is supposedly doing in the nuclear program. And it made very clear, and this, this newspaper is very close to the supreme leader of Iran, and it's close to the revolutionary guards in Iran who really carry the main weight in the country. And the newspaper, this article speaks about how good it is that these people, like Rouhani, Zarif, and others, they are being viewed as uh, people who have deviated from the line of the Islamic Revolution, uh, do not have the right to make decisions on key strategic issues in the country. So it shows you the, uh, how power, basically, is in the hands, continues to be in the hands of the more radicals. And this group were radical extremists, conservatives, there are different factions within them. They have uh, three major advantages in, their, in what they do. They have powers, uh, points of strength that they have. 
One is that they speak in the name of God. They wake up in the morning and date people and tell people what is the true will of God and what is the desire of God. And they, of course, you have to do, you have to follow. And I don't know how they know what is the real uh, wish of God. But they have compensated the right to interpret God for their people, and this carries weight in, in the Middle Eastern religious society. So if the, the word of God is not enough, God forbid, it should be enough, they have also the revolutionary guards, the people who carry the arms in the country. So if you have, if you speak in the name of God and you have the protection of the revolutionary guards, you must be safe. What else do you need? And there is another thing that they have plenty of. They are determined to find to, to fight for their purposes as much as necessary, even to suppress their people. And they know the art of suppression. We saw them in 2009, in 1999, in other cases in Iran, when young people went to the streets and demonstrating for change. They came out with their arms and silenced people. And while they were silencing people with arms, a top ayatollah in Iran, Ayatollah Mesbah Yazdi, went public on a Friday sermon and told people that whoever thinks that Islam is a religion of mercy, this says this ayatollah, does not understand what is Islam. Islam, he says, and this was the mentor, the spiritual father of Ahmadinejad, the president at the time, Islam dictates to us to take sharp sword and cut the heads and tongues of people who speak or act against these other values. And of course, with such ideological uh, guidelines, they go on and suppress. And in the Middle East, there is a cliche saying that nothing succeeds like suppress. <laughs> and they do it very well. And now you would tell me, what is the difference between such ideology of cutting the heads of tongues of people with what is being done by Daesh today, by ISIS? They are doing exactly the same thing. Now what happens is that there is a, another more radical group coming to the scene, and, ult, and what you do, you see that the, the, the radicals of yesterday look moderate. Why? Because they are 36 years in power, and 36 years in power, no matter what is your ideology, you must be more pragmatic. You have to feed, say, 80 million people, and you have to be more pragmatic by necessity. And this happens to any revolution. But did they stop their desire to influence the world, to spread their vision? No. They are active in from Yemen to all countries of the world today, or almost all countries of the world today. They are active in Bahrain, they are active around the boundaries of the State of Israel, in the Hezbollah in Lebanon, Islamic Jihad in the West Bank, Hamas in Gaza Strip, and in many, many other places in the world. So what can, they, what can stop them? How, how far they will go in spreading their ideology? They will go as far as you will let them go. And unless someone stops them, they will go on. 
You block them in one way, they go to another way. So my, my point here is that although there are variation of philosophies or political uh, ten, uh, tendencies within the Iranian uh, society, and while the vast majority of the country, of the people, may not be radical, the ultimate power rests in the hands of the people who have been and still continue to be radical extremist conservatives. And for them, the values of the revolution have not changed, and the philosophy and policy of the revolutionary regime has not been changed. They may have slowed down, they may have not been active in all fronts, but the vision remains the same, and I'll come to it later on. And since the, they are confronted with the Western world, which is the real enemy of this revolution, in their eyes at least, and the Western world today is divided, short-sighted, selfish, looking each on its own narrow, uh, immediate interest, they can go on and on. And the nuclear program in Iran is continuing. Iran learned the lesson. You can play with the West, you can tell them stories, but so far the nuclear program has not slowed down or has not been stopped in Iran. And every here and there including today, we hear about new findings, new things that we learn about their program. Just to make it clear, the Iranians admitted at least twice that they lied to the West about their nuclear program. So what else do you need if they themselves said we didn't tell the truth? So what is the, what I would focus in my talk is on three questions. What is the problem if Iran goes nuclear, if still there is someone who has doubts about it? What is the problem? Whose problem it is? And what can be done? So, what is the problem? Well, I be, I'm sure that people who are sitting around here, they, they know, they are aware, but let me just re reiterate so that we, we are in the same page, as you say. A regime ruled by extremist ideology, as the Islamic Republic of Iran is, should not be allowed to get close to nuclear power, period. I, I don't think there is any way that you can argue against it. And I'll give you an example. Ahmadinejad, the president of Iran for eight years, when he was just elected in 2005, he came to the United States, to, the new, to New York, to the General Assembly of the UN, and he has never missed an opportunity to come to New York as much as he hates the Americans, but he always came to New York to make his uh, show in the UN, in the General Assembly. And when he went back, he was sitting with the leading Ayatollah, sitting on the floor as they usually do, still in some conservative uh, gatherings. And he was telling this Ayatollah about his experience in the UN, and he said that while I was speaking, for 27 minutes, no one moved, no one 
whispered. Everyone was quiet because he say I, I sensed and I was told also by others that there was, there was an aura of light above my head with God protection. People who speak in such a language, would you entrust nuclear weapon in their hands? Let them come close to the, uh, to press the button, God forbid. And I don't need any other explanation when I saw this. And it's on the YouTube. You can go and see what he said. It's not an invention. He, you just Google the right words and you'll come to it. And I remember what they have done in the early days of the revolution, the eight years of war between Iraq and Iran, how they attacked women, stoning of women for of kind of false or non-false accusations. The role in part they are taking in the global terrorism. And I beg you to understand that the fact that there is today another Islamic go uh, government, whatever the name is, Daesh, the Dawlah al-Islamiyah, it doesn't make them moderate. They are radicals and they are radicals, they are on their own time and different ways of acting. I think that the world cannot accept that nuclear power will be in the hand of a country that calls publicly by its highest authorities for the destruction of another country. We can tolerate countries with nuclear power. We may live somehow with radical movements, but the radical movement or country that, that holds nuclear weapon is something which is totally unacceptable. Having nuclear power will advance Iran far in their ambition to be a leading country, a German country in the Middle East and beyond the Middle East. It will help her to make itself the leading Islamic country. Radical Islam with nuclear weapon will give an umbrella to, to movements like Hamas, Hezbollah, Islamic Jihad, and any other radical movement all over the Muslim world, and there are plenty of them. I don't want to think what will happen to the oil price, uh, because right now it doesn't disturb many people, which is around $50, but if you have nuclear Iran, they will dictate what the price of oil will be. And if Iran is nuclear, rest assured that in a short time, you will see other countries in the Middle East playing with these toys. What about Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Turkey, Egypt, and other and other countries? So I think it will be enough to, to show that having a nuclear weapon in the hands of Iran will change the geostrategic map of the Middle East and make it much worse place to live than it, it is it really is. But whose problem it is? Somehow, and I uh, travel a lot and give talks and meet with politicians and meet with media people, somehow I have the sense that the world believes that the problem of Iran, nuclear Iran, is the problem, exclusive problem of the State of Israel. You have to be blind to think like this. 
The problem, I'm telling you, the problem of Iran going nuclear if it is first and foremost for Western civilization. The enemy number one of the Islamic extremism, one, one enemy is at home, their own rulers, while they are in opposition. But the main enemy outside is Western civilization. And to quote a leading Iranian uh, figure, who's been the head of the uh, uh, parliament, he said the following sentence. The Western world has been based on, by, on two pillars. Communist Russia, or Soviet Union, and capitalist America. One of them has gone, the term of the other is soon to come. Islam is the ideology of tomorrow. I was in Australia, and there, out of all places, down under, I saw a map of universe on the, on the year 2000, the millennium, showing the spread of Islam in 2000 and in 2100. Green is, this, is the color of Islam. You could see where is Islam today, and the map entirely was green, 2100. I don't want to say this was going to happen, but that's the way they see. They speak today very plainly about being in Barcelona, in Roma, and being in different parts in Europe. So it will be naive to think that the Islamic revolution or Islamic radicalism emerged only because of the state of Israel. I have news for you. Israel is half of the city of Tehran in terms of population. You don't go to such a revolution for a tiny small country, which is a peanuts, or maybe which in this case we say pistachio for the Iranians. We are, we are nothing. You don't create a revolution for this because of the state of Israel. It doesn't mean that they love Israel. But their vision is much beyond it. It's going back to the glory of the past, making Islam as the uh, most advanced ideology in the world, spreading all over. And you can learn about it from more recent developments. <laughs> President Rouhani, when he was elected in 2013, like his predecessor, the first thing that usually they come in office in, in August and the General Assembly of the UN is September, October, so immediately after swearing in, they come to New York. And Rouhani, which is certainly not a moderate man, he's not reformist, and say a word about him in a moment. When he went back to Iran, he was criticized by the supreme leader, by Ayatollah Khamenei, who is the highest authority. On two issues he was criticized. One was a long meeting between Kerry, uh, the Secretary of State, and Iranian Foreign Minister Zarif. And the other issue was a telephone conversation between President Obama and President Rouhani. 
They were attacked. They were called. Zamin was called to the parliament to explain how come this can happen by the foreign minister of Iran to speak so intimately with the Secretary of State of the United States. More recently, a few weeks ago, they, Zarif and Kerry went out in Geneva to walk on, in the park. You could read the Iranian newspapers what they wrote about this meeting. And they continue to criticize him for this, just walking between, uh, in the park for a few minutes. So this anti-Americanism and anti-Western attitude is the basic philosophy of this revolution. And when I ask people what is easier for Iran to do, to make concession of the nuclear program or normalize relations with the United States? Usually people would say, of course, to make concession of the nuclear issue is much more difficult because it's so important. I don't think so. It will be much more difficult for them to have rapprochement with the United States. For one thing, when you make concession of the nuclear program, it's usually reversible. Second, America, in the, in the revolutionary jargon of the Iranian revolution, is the great Satan. We are lucky in Israel. We are the lesser Satan. The great Satan is the United States. And a picture of President Obama shaking hand with the president of, the, of Iran is something which will be irreversible. And that's why last year, when Rouhani was here, there was an attempt to bring the board, both presidents together to shake hands. It was not Obama that refused to shake hands. It was the president of Iran. Out of fear, what will happen to him if he goes back to... So I think this explains that this false belief that the issue is an exclusively Israeli issue. I don't want to say that it's not a problem of Israel, but it's, it's the problem of the free world. It is a problem of the Middle East and the Islamic world, and it's also the problem of Israel. Ask the Saudis what they think about the Iranian nuclear weapon. Ask the Egyptians. Ask the Turks. And of course, it is also the problem of Israel in many, in many ways. In many ways. Because this regime found Israel a very useful enemy. Ideologically, they are against the existence of the state of Israel. And practically, they don't have any good reason to deviate. Iran, Islamic revolution of Iran has changed many ways its policies. In many policies, in many ways. But it, it's never retreated from its radicalism out of free decision and voluntarily. They've always done so when they were forced to do so. In the case of Israel, they don't have any good reason not to do. So not, not to continue their policy. Why they hate Israel so much? Because for them, Judaism is religion. It is not nationality. Jews do not have the right to have a state of themselves, certainly not in the Middle East, and of course not with Jerusalem and its capital. It is not a political struggle. It's not a struggle about boundaries. Give them Tel Aviv and Haifa. That's not enough. 
because for them the issue is much larger than this. This uh, the concept of Jewish state it's totally unacceptable. It's a struggle between two powers, the absolute good of Islam and absolute falsehood of Judaism. One of them has to be destroyed for the other one to survive. And it's clear which one of them should survive. The hate Israel also because of its close relations with the United States. And I, I must be honest with you, I don't really know often if they hate America because of Israel or if they hate Israel because of the United States. But it really doesn't make much difference. We are both satans. One is a, a great satan, one is a lesser satan. But the relations that Israel had with America and the fact that we are considered to be the missionaries or the messengers of Western capitalism in the heart of the Middle East is a good reason to hate us. The fact that Israel had good relations with the, United, with the Shah of Iran is another reason. So for them, Israel or Judaism is the symbol of all the best, worst thing in the world. But usually, you know, I, I have to be careful with the Jews of Iran. They tolerate the Jews of Iran. It's not, it's not anti-Jewish policy. It's more nationalistic policy. But when it comes to Jews, uh, to Holocaust, there was a conference in Iran by, organized by the president of Iran for denial of Holocaust. So this was the radical one, Ahmadinejad. What about the moderate one, Rouhani, who was in New York October 2013? And he was on CNN, asked a question by the uh, uh, station. What? Farid Zakaria. Farid Zakaria it was. I, I'm not... Uh, maybe. Uh, and, and, uh, and he was asked if he would retreat from what uh, Ahmadinejad said about that the, the Holocaust wa was a myth. Now, here is the president of Iran, a moderate, a smiling, a smiling sheikh who is being asked, and what was the answer? I am not an historian, I am a politician. My dear friends, you don't need to be historian to know there was Holocaust. And this is the moderate. Go and see how the radicals are. But again, I must admit they are nice to the Jews of Iran. They are, they tolerate the Jews of Iran because the Jews of Iran are very obedient, very faithful, and and just recently, yeah, you have to say also things which are good. A few weeks ago, they allowed the the children in schools, the Jewish school, not in Jewish schools, in public schools, not to come to school on Saturdays, out of respect for Judaism. So that's it's a very Mix, mixed signals that we see from there. So ideologically they are against, against Israel, but do they have a pragmatic reason to deviate? I don't think so. For a revolution like Iran, which is a failed revolution, which did not succeed to, to bring the people of Iran what it promised to bring, what the promise of the revolution was not to create an Islamic Republic. I lived in Iran the last two years of the Shah's rule doing research and doing my basically collecting material for my PhD. And I saw the people going to the streets. 
I don't think they went after Islamic State. They wish to achieve two things. Social justice and political justice. They wanted, I will narrow it down, to have welfare and liberty, bread and freedom. 36 years after, they don't have it. Under the Shah, and I learned in Iran, under non-democratic system of the Shah to appreciate democracy, because only if you live in non-democratic state, you really appreciate what is the value of democracy. Under the Shah to speak against him was a crime. Today to speak about against the Islamic Revolution is a sin. I don't know which one of them is better. And is there much more welfare for the underprivileged uh, parts of Iranian society today? No. The rich became richer, the poor are as poor as they have been, and even worse. But it's good to have an enemy far away from the country. You can blame on Israel everything. The economy is bad, it's because of capitalism, it's because of Israel, because foreigners. You know, they, sometimes it's funny when you read Persian. Let's take the speech by Ayatollah Khamenei, the Supreme Leader, just recently, but it's being repeated all the time. He made a speech saying that, using what Ayatollah Khomeini, the founding father of the revolution, said, America cannot do any damn thing. Well, there is one, at least Persian speaking, said, Hichqalat. They cannot do any, any wrong, any bad thing. And he continues, and then he says, he explains the problems face, that Iran is facing. We say all our problems were made by the United States. Okay, I have to, to decide. Either they cannot do any damn thing, or they are responsible for all the misery of the Iranian people. So you, you get the whole, the two, two things together, and they don't even feel there is a, some kind of conflict in between them. So Israel is an easy, easy enemy. There is a Persian phrase say, that says that a, a low wall, that you can step on. In their, narrow, in their immediate neighborhood, Iran is much more careful. But when it comes to the state of Israel, far away, they can send the Hamas and Hezbollah to fight with Israel. So, with this case, there is no, uh, there is no uh, much uh, harm that Israel exists. Sometimes I have the feeling that God forbid, if Israel was not in existence, it would be good for the Islamic Republic of Iran to establish the Jewish state of Israel. So they will have an easy enemy. So what is the Israeli dilemma? If you speak about Iran, a nuclear program of Iran, everyone would think that it is our problem. The more we speak about it, the more the world is convinced that it is exclusive problem of Israel. Of Israel. But if we don't speak about it, the world would forget. So no matter what you think about Prime Minister Netanyahu going to the Congress or wherever and speaking up, it, it is also out of sense of duty that if we don't speak about it, the world will forget. There may be better ways to do things. But I think that ultimately someone must raise its voice, and unfortunately others are not doing, uh, doing it, and ultimately it falls to be 
something that Israel is. And, and, and the Muslim world is alike. Saudi Arabia is also willing. Uh, there was a few, couple of years ago in, the, in their newspapers that they will be allowing the Israelis to use their airspace to go and attack Iran. Uh, come on, don't give us airspace. Go and do it yourself. You are immediate neighbors. You are there. Well, everyone push it is on, on the shoulders of this small country of Israel. What we achieved, regardless of all the things being said about Israel with, with all these talks, and for some time we managed to make the world much more aware of the problem. And I think that recently there have been some progress combating Iran on the nuclear front. The sanctions have been very, very successful. If you ask yourself why Iran is negotiating with the 5 plus 1, it's primarily and to large degree because of the pressure on them. Pressure is the key word when you, when you uh, uh, confront with a country like Iran. As I said earlier, they do not retreat from their dogma voluntarily. Only when there is a clash between ideology and interest, usually interest wins. So the, the, the sanctions were very harmful. The fact that Europe stood with the United States, I, I appreciate it very much because it doesn't necessarily happen all the time. But in this issue, the West, the de Western democracies were with the United States. And therefore, in the last two years, there has been pressure going, uh, more and more pressure of Iran that actually forced Iran to come to negotiation, uh, negotiation table. But exactly when it was seen that Iran is weak and is desperate to have uh, some kind of uh, agreement with the West, the West forgot one thing. They forgot how strong the West is. And you can't go to the Iranians if you don't recognize your strengths. And I, th I think if I have something to say about the American policy, I don't see this recognition of power and strength and abilities with which you can come to negotiation table and uh, have a better deal. I am not against negotiations with Iran. I've never been against uh, dealing with Iran, dialogue with Iran. But I beg the world to understand that Iran is desperate to deal much more than the West is desperate to deal. And it could have gained much better deal that we can see right now as much as we know. The people of Iran are upset and angry and disillusioned and disenchanted. The situation in Iran is bad economically. It's bad in terms of human rights. It's bad in many other ways. It was, I think, the duty of the West to use its force, its power, its abilities to have better deal. Unfortunately, Russia is not with the United States. <coughs> China 
doesn't seem to care much about what's going on in the Middle East except for their economic interest. I don't think that Russia wants to see Iran nuclear. They know what is Islamic radicalism. And they don't have a desire to see an immediate neighbor like Iran holding nuclear weapons. But I think that at this time they don't mind to see America sweat. And America has shown to the Iranians, and that's you read in their newspapers, they are incapable of acting against them. The best way to understand was what happened in Syria with their use of chemical weapons. You cannot be a superpower and say that this is unacceptable, there is a red line of use of nuclear weapon, and then when they use the nuclear weapon, you don't do anything. Not that I think that doing things was easy, and thanks God, the world managed to convince the Syrians to get rid of the, of the uh, chemical weapon in different ways. But for the Iranians, it was an insurance. If they didn't do anything to Syria, how they will dare do something to us? And they look at others and they draw the lesson. And finally, what can be done? I think that it's important that the West, Western Front should be remain unified. United States needs its transatlantic allies more than any time else. And they should work together, as they done in the last couple of years, or two or three years. Uh, Iran is now behaving as though it's important element in struggling against Islamic radicalism of the Islamic State, the ISIS. It, is, it may be true, but they are doing it for their own selfish interests. By the same token, I could say that if there is any country which has done the most important services to Iran's national interest, it's the United States of America. America, with its allies, removed the enemy number one of Iraq, Saddam Hussein, from their western border. After eight years of war between Iraq and Iran, they couldn't get rid of Saddam Hussein. America did the job for them. First in 1991, breaking their military power, and in 2003, removing Saddam Hussein. The same America went to their eastern front and removed the enemy number two of Iran, the Taliban of Afghanistan. What else do you need? Well, the Iranians have their own peculiar way to say thank you to the United States for these, all these services. And of course, America has done it for its own interest, not for the Iranians. But the fact that Iran would cooperate against the, against the Islamic State, it's the basic, the most important national interest of Iran today, confronting with the Arab countries, confronting with Islamic Sunni radicalism. We have to remember that Iran continues to be a threat. And this kind of threat, coupled with possession of nuclear capabilities, is going to change dramatically the Middle East. The way to confront Iran, from what I've learned from the history, 
is to pressure Iran. And if pressure is not sufficient, you have to put more pressure. To make them surely understand that there is a high price to pay to go against what the expectation of the free world. Ultimately, and with this I will stop, I'm a student of history. I studied history all my life. <clears throat> and from, if I can learn something from Iranian history, is that ultimately the people of Iran will take care of the situation in Iran. Iran is the only country in the Middle East which had two big revolutions in the 20th century. And very, one of the very few in the world which had two big revolutions in one century. Iran is the first country and only country so far in the Middle East which had the constitutional revolution. And the constitutionalism continues to be a very important value, even for the Islamic revolution. Many people ask why there was no Arab Spring in Iran after what happened in winter of 2011 in some of the Arab countries. Well, the most simple question, the answer is the, there was no Arab Spring in Iran because Iran is not an Arab state. But more seriously, there was Arab Spring, there was this kind of spring in Iran in 2009. When Ahmadinejad was elected, if you can speak like this, won the elections in his own way, and people went to the streets demonstrating against the way he was elected, because they thought that this was not the true will of the God, not what the ballot have shown. And by the way, the two people who were running against Ahmadinejad eight years or nine years ago, they are still under house arrest. So, many people went to the streets demonstrating. You know, one of their slogans was that, why should we care about Lebanon and Palestine? Iran, Iran, Iran. They were fighting for freedom. And the world did not say anything to support the young people of Iran. And I want to give you details who did not say what. But these people <coughs> have, will change the face of Iran. <coughs> but at this stage, what we see in Iran, there are two trends simultaneously in action, in motion. One trend, or I would say one train is carrying the message of nuclear weapon, and the other train is carrying the message of political change in Iran. Unfortunately, from what I see, the train with nuclear weapon is driving much faster than the other train. There is not much that the West can do in accelerating the political change in Iran, but there is much that the West can do to slow down the Iranian march towards nuclear weapon. Thank you.